from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Monday, June 7th. Today, the future of voting rights, Colombia's shrinking middle class, and swiping right on vaccines. Joe Manchin, Democratic senator from West Virginia, published an op-ed in his uh, hometown newspaper in Charleston, West Virginia. And he announced that he was going to oppose the For the People Act, which is the Democratic Party's marquee voting rights legislation. He also went on Sunday shows, CBS's Face the Nation, and talked about that his problem with the bill wasn't anything in the legislation itself, it's that it just wasn't bipartisan enough. There weren't any Republicans supporting it, so he had to oppose it. And I've always been about bipartisanship. I've always tried to work in a bipartisan way, and I've voted in a bipartisan way in the last 10 years of the Senate. So I'm doing what I have always done. He's not objected specifically to anything in the bill. No no particular policy provision has he said, that's a no-go for me. His objection to this has been solely on the grounds that it, it isn't bipartisan. My name is Mike DeBonis. I cover Congress for The Washington Post. What is the For the People Act and why is this on the Democrats' agenda right now? So the For the People Act is a piece of legislation that's been around for actually about three years now. It's sort of a catch-all of a variety of Democratic good government elections, campaign, ethics proposals, all packaged into one bill. And it's really taken on a new degree of relevance in the in recent months since obviously what happened after the 2020 election, President Trump challenging the results of that election. And you, you saw basically Republicans in states across the country follow President Trump's lead and try to undo any number of voting provisions having to do with early voting, vote by mail and other things. And Democrats basically coalesced around this bill as the best way to address those concerns. But it really touches a lot more issues than that. And right now it passed the House in March. It's been sitting in the Senate since then. The Senate committee took it up last month. Um, and now it's waiting for a floor vote, which Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said is going to happen later this month. We should say Joe Manchin has found himself in this almost outsized position in his party in that legislation can't move forward without him. But what does this mean for this bill? Well, without Joe Manchin, you don't have 50 votes and you need 50 votes to advance any bill in a 100 vote Senate. Democrats right now have Vice President Harris able to cast the 51st tie-breaking vote. Um, so any one senator, if you're going to advance something that's purely partisan and does has no crossover support from Republicans, you need everybody united. And Joe Manchin gets a lot of the attention because he's somebody who styles himself as a maverick, as somebody who sits on the rightmost flank of the Democratic caucus, tries to work deals in the middle, tries to get Republicans and Democrats together. But the other problem in the Senate is, is that you don't just need 50 votes to pass anything. You actually need 60 votes to break what's called a filibuster, which is the supermajority rule that's been in, in effect in the Senate 
for many decades. And Joe Manchin has separately made clear, and he did so again in this op-ed, that he has no intention of changing the filibuster. So his position that he expressed this weekend wasn't especially new. I mean, he he basically repeated things he said before, but he did it in a more forceful way. He did it in a way that seemed to sound the death knell for this very high-profile piece of legislation that a lot of Democrats, a lot of activists and advocates have said is absolutely essential to protecting voting rights in the country. And he said that what's been frustrating to them is that Manchin has said, not only you know, am I not actually going to say what I think is wrong with the bill, what I want to happen with this bill is probably not feasible. Um, there simply aren't any Republicans who have not only co-sponsored this bill, but the, the Republican leadership in both the House and the Senate has been very, very strongly against this. They've very clearly sketched out that this is unacceptable to them. They do not want federal legislation directing states how to run their elections. And uh, Mitch McConnell in particular has rallied his members around that point. And, you know, most observers of the Senate see very little chance that there's going to be any sort of bipartisan support on this issue, let alone enough to get those 10 votes in addition to the 50 Democratic votes to actually pass a bill. So, you know, that's basically what Joe Manchin said. He basically set out an impossible standard, you know, a, a something that just isn't going to happen to pass a voting rights bill. But I'm curious if Joe Manchin has said, you know, his problem with this bill is that it's just plain and simple partisanship, that if you can't come to the table and you can't get both parties to agree on this, then it just shouldn't go forward. Hasn't he already voted for partisan legislation in the past? I mean, he has. And and, and a lot of, uh, you know, number one, most recently, he voted for the American Rescue Plan, uh, President Biden's coronavirus relief bill. $2 trillion, which is a lot bigger than, you know, Joe Manchin wanted. But at the end of the day, they went through a process. They went through some degree of bipartisan negotiations, and he ended up on board at the end of the day. I think that there is some feeling out there that the real issue now isn't necessarily his p- position on a voting rights bill that was really going to be a Hail Mary to pass in the first place. I think there's a lot of concern that is he going to be there on the president's infrastructure bill? which very well could advance only on uh, partisan lines. And, you know, he sends signals that he still is not happy with the bipartisan process that's being played out on that side. So I think people are really on tenor hooks trying to figure out where Joe Manchin is, where he's going to end up being. It's just, uh, it's, it's a very anxious position for Democrats to be in, knowing that, you know, your entire agenda is dependent on the views, feelings, some would say whims, of one very moderate uh, Democrat from West Virginia. Hmm. You know, we should mention that there is another voting bill being considered right now, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Does that legislation have a better shot than this one? And do we know where Manchin stands on that? So there's a complicated answer to that question. Yes, there is this other bill called the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. What it would do is restore a process that was in place prior to 2013, whereby the Justice Department was able to review voting laws passed in a number of states, most of them in the Deep South and in a few other jurisdictions. And it could reject them if it felt that they engaged in racially discriminatory 
restrictions of voting. And that basically froze in place voting laws across the Deep South for two generations. The Supreme Court struck down a key part of that law in 2013, and that basically opened the door to what you've seen in Georgia, in particular, some of these other states that have gone and restricted vote by mail and early voting. You know, Joe Manchin actually has proposed this as an alternative to going forward with the For the People Act, but it's not quite as simple as swapping one bill for the other. And the other thing hanging out there is, is that just like the Supreme Court overturned this provision back in 2013, they could very well do it again. The Supreme Court now is more conservative than it was then. And it's uh, very easy to think that, you know, a repassed Voting Rights Act would simply be struck down again by the high, high court. So it, that, that's, that's the big reason why the people advocating for the For the People Act don't see the John Lewis bill as a good alternative. They see it as a, as a ride-along measure that helps protect advances that have been made, but it's, it's not the full package needed to really address what they're seeing as a problem out in, in these conservative states across the country. Hmm. So, Mike, moving forward, what are you looking for for voting rights? Well, one of the things I'm looking at is how do Democrats deal with this setback internally? I think that they're, they're, you saw a lot, of, a lot of anger Sunday on social media basically directed at Joe Manchin for basically, you know, how dare you stand in the way of this major thing that we want? Well, at the end of the day, you can't unelect Joe Manchin. You need Joe Manchin to, you know, move forward on anything else. And the question is, did Democrats allow that sort of anger to be turned inward and sort of create problems in other areas? Or do they sort of accept reality, which is... Joe Manchin is a moderate guy from West Virginia, always has been. He's probably the only Democrat who can get elected to that seat. And do they just say, hey, Joe, that's fine. Can we work with you on infrastructure? Can we get something done here? And um, I think that's the attitude the leadership is going to have. But uh, I think that there's the question is, is whether the rank and file is going to be able to sort of tamp down that frustration and work positively on the things that they can get done or whether it just creates more sort of internecine warfare going forward that's going to just cause more problems. Mike DeBonis is a congressional reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. Two years ago, before the pandemic, Latin America had reached a milestone where the single largest income group in the region was actually middle class. Then comes the pandemic. And people who have spent a lifetime trying to climb their way out of poverty, which in a place like Colombia can take 11 generations, suddenly find themselves falling down the ladder again. And what we wanted to do was capture this moment, which is not only a terrible moment personally for the people suffering it, but for a region overall. Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean Bureau Chief for The Post. He has been reporting from Colombia on the disproportionate effect the pandemic has had on the middle class.
And Tony, tell me, what was life like in the middle class in Latin America, especially Colombia, before the pandemic? And how has the pandemic changed all of this? I don't think you could say that it was a necessarily easy life, even if you were middle class, right? You still sometimes struggled to pay the bills the same way people in the, in the middle class in the United States do. But what you didn't have to do was worry about where your next meal was likely coming from. And you could additionally have aspirations in your life. I spent most of my time in Cartagena with Marla Mendoza, an Afro-Colombian tour guide who had spent years building a company that offers Afrocentric tours of a city that really used to be the hub of the Spanish slave trade. His specialty was essentially laying bare that history and making sure that it wasn't glossed over for the visitors that came there. He basically spent his lifetime working hard, I mean, studying English, getting access to education that many people born in his situation did not have. Uh, He really pushed himself hard and got to a place where he was able to have aspirations for the future. His company fell on severe times after the pandemic struck and tourism dried up. He was evicted from his offices, forced to lay off his employees, and he moved his family out of the city limits and back to Puerto Rey, which is a dirt road village where he was born. It's a small cluster of ramshackle dwellings with corrugated metal roofs and crisscross of sort of pothole dirt roads. His family is now living in a tiny apartment on top of a bar. In trying to make the best of life in a village where some of the residents still don't have regular running water or electricity. And so, Tony, what else did Marlon tell you about how the pandemic has changed life for him? Marlon is an an infectiously optimistic man. But that said, in his moments of deepest candor, essentially what he gave us was a sense of the loss that he's feeling and almost a sense of exhaustion about the struggle ahead. This is someone who was seen in his community as a great success story, a man who would show up in the village putting a wad of pesos in a relative's hands. He bought his father a motorbike. He'd give his cousin T-shirts. And, you know, suddenly now he's living amongst them again. And the adjustment is hard, not only for him, but for his family as well. And he is also a person who is every day confronted with the stark inequalities around him that existed even before the pandemic. There was one point, for instance, when we were traveling together uh, past a neighborhood on an Italian-built highway that looks something like a mini Miami. Basically, it's luxury condos, as far as is the eye can see. But then immediately afterwards, um, there are shacks that are homes that don't have power, don't have regular access to electricity, don't have regular access to running water. And then you go a couple of more miles down a dirt road filled with potholes, and you're at the, the town of his birth which is where he finds himself back today, exactly where he started. Personas que no tienen a veces agua potable, que no tienen luz. 
Marlon, at his best years and his best months before the pandemic, was able to garner enough business directly through his website to no longer have to worry about pounding the cobblestones and handing out business cards to random tourists. However, he no longer has that luxury because his business has dried up and uh, so much so that he's lost the URL even on his company name account because he wasn't able to pay the taxes on it. So now he's forced to essentially in the mornings spend hours going through Old Town Cartagena doing what every other unemployed tour guide in Cartagena is doing, trying to sort of swarm the few tourists that they can find and stuff their business cards in their hands and try to make the pitch. You know, I myself spent several hours with him doing that, and he didn't have any success, at least when I was with him. And you can see the frustration on his face every time he approaches a tourist who simply walks by him, sometimes without even stopping. Um. Marlon is someone who wanted to make clear constantly that he never wanted to use, in his own words, his race as an excuse. And he constantly was talking about how he was eager to make sure that he worked as hard as anybody. And he was very insistent on making that point clear, right? But at the same time, there's a certain obvious truth that he wanted to share and that he just bluntly put out there, that it is harder to be a black man in Colombia and make it. You know, he talked often, for instance, about the fact that concierges at hotels and Cartagena would make him stand outside of the hotels because they didn't want a black man standing in the lobby. And what Marlon is experiencing as a black Afro-Colombian, I mean, is that indicative of the experience there? Has this population been disproportionately affected during the pandemic? What we have seen is that the labor income for Afro-Colombians has fallen more than for any other race in Colombia. You're talking about a segment of the population that is sadly already doing worse than everybody else in the sense that for the last many, many years, you've had slowly reducing poverty in Colombia. And the Afro-Colombian population has also seen some reduction in poverty, but not at the same pace. You mentioned that his family has also been affected by what's happening Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. He was particularly concerned about his seven-year-old son, Emmanuel. Back before the pandemic, he was able to afford to send Emmanuel to private school. After the pandemic struck and after his business dried up, he was no longer able to afford to send his son there. And his great concern is that his son is now falling backwards in his education. And it's a painful thing to watch. It used to be, for instance, a year and a half ago that his son was able to read entire sentences in his books. Now he struggles with words and he struggles with counting. So you're, you're just talking about a situation where for these kids, the education has been deeply, deeply hit by the pandemic. I think the concern is that a lot of the advances that these countries have made in the last years are going to be put in jeopardy or at least sent back, you know, because of the pandemic. And I don't think any of us really know what the long-term outcome of that is going to be. But certainly for people like Marlon, it feels devastating. And that devastation that so many people in Colombia are feeling, we've been seeing that boil over into protests. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
it is true that a lot of these problems predated the pandemic. But what you can say is that the pandemic exacerbated them. And it also got to the point where people who were experiencing poverty again after having emerged from it or people in poverty who were plunging into hunger they've lost patience with their governments. And in Colombia, what you saw was a tax proposal that was going to hit the middle class. And many people in Colombia felt that it was going to shield the rich. And that didn't fly with the masses. And, you know, we saw the outcome with people on the streets. Ultimately, we also saw that a small minority of those people also became more aggressive and the police also became aggressive in return. And the outcome became this untenable situation of social unrest that Colombia continues to be grappling with. One of the interesting conversations I had when I was in Cartagena was with the mayor of the city who voiced some real concern over the extent to which the growing inequality and poverty had become something of a tinderbox in the country. And if not dealt with, could lead to an even larger um, social implosion or explosion. I think that the pandemic has exasperated or raised awareness of a lot of social ills mm -hmm. that have plagued this country since forever, since back, going back to colonial times. And people are now clamoring for a change. And I think those are concerns that are shared not just by him, but by others as well. As the pandemic basically ravages a lot of the poverty reductions that we've seen in recent years. But in some ways, Colombia could be a bit of a ghost of the future because it's happening there, but the same conditions and the same problems that they're going through are also unfolding in many other developing and middle-income nations, not only in Latin America, but beyond. What's one thing that's really stuck with you on this reporting trip? I think what this shows us is that the economic implications of the pandemic have been profound. And I, I don't think you can minimize the importance of the loss of life, particularly in Latin America, where there have been so many people who have died from this pandemic. But I think what you're also looking at is another dimension where people's livelihoods and their futures and their children's futures have been put in jeopardy because of this pandemic. So many jobs in the region are informal, and they're not salaried jobs where you can collect unemployment or you have other social safety nets that could stop you from falling, plunging back to where you were before. A lot of that is not really applicable because they're laboring in the informal economies. And I think more than anything, what it tells us is that we have to be really cognizant going forward of the impact on these countries, not only just on the health systems, but also on the economies and on the future aspirations of the people who live there. Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean bureau chief for The Post. Sabi Robinson produced this story with translation help from Anna Herrero. Megan Janetsky also contributed to this reporting. And now, one more thing from reporter Marissa Ayati. 
The White House announced a partnership with nine dating apps, including some of the biggest ones like Tinder and Bumble, where people can put a badge or a sticker on their profile to show that they've been vaccinated. And young people have been the most hesitant group of all of the categories of adults so far. And that seems to be largely in part because young adults don't view the virus as as much of a threat as older adults and somebody in their 20s might not necessarily feel the same urgency to go out and get vaccinated. I think a lot of people that I've talked with have said that they were doing a lot of chatting with others on these apps during the pandemic and just using them to meet people, especially when traditional gathering places like bars and clubs were largely closed. But a lot of people have not necessarily been taking those connections offline and going out and meeting in person. And so there seems to be an effort here, subtle or not, to get people to consider being safe about how they get out there and make these connections in person again. Usually at these White House briefings, they're pretty serious. They're talking about case numbers and hospitalizations and the really dark reality of a lot of this pandemic. But this this moment where Andy Slavitt, who is the White House's advisor on the COVID response, was announcing this was a little bit awkward in an amusing way. We have finally found the one thing that makes us all more attractive, a vaccination. And then in the background, you have Dr. Anthony Fauci and Rochelle Walensky, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, kind of stifling laughs and putting their face in their hand for a minute to try to avoid chuckling, because this is kind of an unorthodox thing for the government to be getting involved in and you know being in front of a, you know, an official CDC podium saying, swipe right to, to get vaxxed and uh, Basically, you can choose to have some kind of image on your profile. And your profile, it says either I am vaccinated or I got my shot, something along those lines, so that when people are swiping through these profiles, they can see immediately this person has gotten vaccinated against the coronavirus and this person hasn't. But it's going to be an honor system like a lot of other things around vaccination at the moment. One of the dating coaches that I talked with pointed out that people do lie on dating apps all the time, particularly and famously about their height or other things about their physical appearance. And so we do have to keep in mind that not everyone may necessarily tell the truth about this either. I talked to a couple of people who are currently using these apps, and they all seemed a little bit skeptical that if somebody is a holdout, that they're going to jump off their couches and run out and get a shot so that they can get either a sticker on their Tinder profile or you know, a boost on Bumble to get in front of more people. But some people said, you know, maybe a couple of people will be motivated by that. And if so, it's a worthwhile endeavor. This is really very small in the grand scheme of incentives, and it's more of a reminder than a real impetus to run out and do this. Marissa Ayati is a reporter for The Post. The story was also produced by Sabi Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. As we move into a world where some people are vaccinated and some people aren't, there are a lot of complicated social situations. For example, I plan on visiting my family for the first time since the pandemic began. But I know that not everyone I want to see is vaccinated. How do I handle that situation? What do I do? What do I say? 
These are the kinds of questions that we want to hear from you and put to our advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks. Record yourself asking your question and send it to us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.